You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. It is Tuesday, August 18th, which means we are only 76 days away from the election and only 160 days from knowing who won. Now, as you know, yesterday was day one of the Democratic National Convention. And if you didn't have time to watch all two hours, well, we're gonna bring you all of the highlights just like we promised. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, the Daily Social Distancing Show presents the Democratic National Convention electing America's first black president's friend. Now, every convention is not just about officially picking the nominee. It's also about telling a story about what the party represents. And from the get-go last night, it was clear that the Democrats were trying to portray themselves as the party of diversity, unity, and also patriotism. The show kicked off with people of every race, ethnicity, and gender reciting the Constitution, then the Pledge of Allegiance, and then singing the national anthem, after which they were ominously trapped inside an American flag. I'm assuming the only way to set them free is by electing Joe Biden as president. I think that's how the spell works, right? And I mean, it's clear why the Democrats have to lay the patriotism on so thick. Because between protesting police brutality and kneeling during the anthem, the Republicans have tried to make it seem like Democrats don't love America just because they criticize it. So look, I get why Democrats are trying to fight that perception, but if I'm gonna be honest, you are never gonna beat Trump when it comes to symbolic patriotism. I mean, yeah, you're singing the anthem, but anytime Trump even sees a flag, he tries to the shit out of it. Now, after 10 minutes of patriotism porn, the show heard from a number of everyday Americans from the swing state of Pennsylvania all the way to the other parts of Pennsylvania. Business owners talked about their struggles during COVID and Trump voters talked about why they stopped supporting him. They also had an appearance by the family of George Floyd who talked about the need to fight systemic racism. But one of the most powerful moments early in the show came from a woman whose Trump supporting father died from COVID-19. I'm Kristen Urquiza. I'm one of the many who has lost a loved one to COVID. My dad, Mark Anthony Urquiza, should be here today, but he isn't. He had faith in Donald Trump. He voted for him, listened to him, believed him and his mouthpieces when they said that coronavirus was under control and going to disappear. My dad went to a karaoke bar with his friends. A few weeks later, he was put on a ventilator. And after five agonizing days, he died alone. His only pre-existing condition was trusting Donald Trump. One of the last things that my father said to me was that he felt betrayed by the likes of Donald Trump. Wow, that was absolutely scathing. And she's right. Believing Donald Trump is truly one of the most harmful things you can do. And that was, that was even before he was president. I mean, just ask Atlantic City, his first two wives, or any graduate of Trump University. The degree was made of asbestos. But after hearing from some regular Americans, it was time to hear from America's weirdest Americans, politicians. And one of the biggest speakers of the night was Republican John Kasich, the former governor of Ohio, and guy who's always moments away from needing the Heimlich maneuver. He crossed party lines to warn his fellow Republicans about the cost of supporting Trump. 
America is at a crossroads. Sometimes elections represent a real choice, a choice we make as individuals and as a nation about which path we want to take when we've come to challenging times. America is at that crossroads today. The stakes in this election are greater than any in modern times. Many of us have been deeply concerned about the current path we've been following for the past four years. It's a path that's led to division, dysfunction, irresponsibility, and growing vitriol between our citizens. Continuing to follow that path will have terrible consequences for America's soul because we're being taken down the wrong road by a president who has pitted one against the other. He's unlike all of our best leaders before him who worked to unite us, to bridge our differences and lead us to a united America. Wow, how creative. America is at a crossroads and he's standing at a crossroads. I wonder if that was intentional. Hey man, I'm just glad that Kasich went with a safe metaphor like America is at a crossroads because he could have gone with a much more dangerous one. America is in a plane that's about to crash and the only parachute has been thrown out of the window. Wait, maybe this was a bad idea. Now, understandably, a lot of progressives weren't happy to see the DNC giving airtime to a Republican who doesn't share the party's values. But at the same time, many people in the Democratic Party argue that in order to defeat Trump, they need to broaden their appeal to win those crucial swing states that gave Trump the White House in 2016. So if it means teaming up with anti-Trump Republicans, then so be it. And you know what this kind of reminds me of? It reminds me of Godzilla. Like, you remember how we hated Godzilla, right? Because he loved smashing our shit. But then Ghidorah showed up and he didn't want to just smash our shit. He wanted to destroy the entire planet. So then as humans, we had to team up with Godzilla to take out Ghidorah. And who would have ever thought we'd be with Godzilla, we gave him a speaking slot at the convention, but it was worth it because he smashes shit, but we've got a planet. I'm sorry, I've been watching too many weird movies during quarantine. But don't get it twisted. Kasich may have spoken at the convention, but the prime slots were reserved for the Democratic heavy hitters, including the OG progressive himself, Bernie Sanders. Together, we must build a nation that is more equitable, more compassionate, and more inclusive. I know that Joe Biden will begin that fight on day one. Joe supports raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Joe will rebuild our crumbling infrastructure and fight the threat of climate change by transitioning us to 100% clean electricity over the next 15 years. Joe Biden will end the hate and division Trump has created. And then we can finally go back to the hate and division that existed before Trump. You know, the regular hate and division, not this crazy shit with the red hats and the boats. What the hell is that? I'm really impressed with Bernie Sanders because he's doing everything in his power right now to take down Donald Trump. Not only is he giving a full-throated endorsement of Joe Biden, but the man stayed up until 10 o'clock to give that speech. That's not nothing. And Bernie's point was very clear. He was telling his base that progressives cannot afford to cast protest votes like they did in 2016. Because this shit we lived through, this was four years of Trump still caring about being reelected. Imagine what he'd be like totally unleashed. Forget pardoning other people. Second term, Trump will be pardoning himself mid-crime. He'll be out there robbing banks like, all right, everybody, I'm gonna need you to get on the ground. Pardoned. This is a robbery. Put the money in the bag. Pardoned. And by the way, ma'am, 
I love your boobs. Pardon, pardon. So the thrust of the night was clear. People across the ideological spectrum need to unite against Donald Trump. And by and large, I'm pretty impressed. I mean, a virtual convention has never happened before, but the Democrats were able to string together appearances from all around the country, from John Kasich in a field somewhere to Bernie Sanders giving a speech in a cabin where he clearly murdered Groot's entire family and stacked them in the background. But don't get me wrong, the night didn't go entirely smoothly. Good evening. I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn, here in historic... Good evening. I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn. Hello, America. The price of failure is just too great to imagine. Thank you. Oh, I see what's going on here. This was smart of the Democrats, trying to make it seem like they have the same embarrassing tech issues as regular Americans. Very relatable. And you gotta feel bad for Bernie Sanders, man. An awkwardly timed applause can ruin any speech, no matter how good it is. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Now, the truth is, nobody remembers all the glitches and the bad timing. Because all anybody was talking about today was the Democrats' closer, former first lady and walking vision board, Michelle Obama. I understand that my message won't be heard by some people. We live in a nation that is deeply divided, and I am a black woman speaking at the Democratic convention. But enough of you know me by now. You know that I tell you exactly what I'm feeling. You know I hate politics. But you also know that I care about this nation. More than 150,000 people have died. And our economy is in shambles because of a virus that this president downplayed for too long. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. Oof. That was ice cold. And what made it even more devastating was that Michelle Obama wasn't angry. She wasn't yelling. She just stated Trump's complete failure as a president as an obvious fact. You know, it's the difference between your mom screaming at you and your mom just casually sipping a coffee and going, well, not all kids can be winners. And you know, another thing I appreciated about Michelle's speech is that she didn't shame people, right? In the last few years, it's been pretty standard in politics to shame people who don't agree with you and don't intend to vote like you. And a lot of it is fueled by the toxicity of online culture and how divided the country is right now. But instead of doing that, Michelle acknowledged there are people who don't want to hear what she has to say, and then she respectfully and earnestly engaged with those who might want to listen to her and asked them to back Biden. I think that's what made her speech so brilliant. In a way, it's almost unfair that the Obama family was blessed with two charismatic public orators. I mean, they give great speeches all the time like it's nothing. And then you've got Trump, 
who acts like he's discovering the English language as he speaks. And so we have these accomplishments and accomplishments so true, what a word. Now, it's no surprise that Donald Trump wasn't as impressed by Michelle's speech, but the reason why was pretty surprising. She was over her head, and frankly, she should have made the speech live, which she didn't do. She taped it. And it was not only taped, it was taped a long time ago because she had the wrong deaths. God damn. That is one of the biggest self-owns I have ever seen. 150,000 dead? I've killed 20,000 more since then, you idiot. Hey, Herman, get a load of this idiot. Herman? So... That's how the Democrats kicked off their convention. And if Democrats can get some more speeches like Michelle Obama's, well, then it's just a matter of time before America turns Donald Trump into Donald Dumped. <laughs> Oof, tough room. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll celebrate the 100th anniversary of white women getting the right to vote. So stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is the 100th anniversary of American women winning the right to vote. It's an important moment in history, and surprisingly, Donald Trump was aware of it. President Trump announced he will issue a posthumous presidential pardon for Susan B. Anthony, a leader of the women's suffrage movement. She was arrested and convicted for illegally voting in the 1872 election. I will be signing a full and complete pardon for Susan B. Anthony. She was never pardoned. Did you know that? She was never pardoned. What took so long? Oh, so now voting illegally is okay. I mean, look, this is kind of a nice gesture, I guess, but based on what we know about Trump, I bet he's only pardoning her because he thinks she has dirt on him. Susan B. Anthony was a great figure in the women's suffrage movement, and she also knows how to keep her mouth shut. Great thing, powerful thing. But as important as this date is, the passage of the 19th Amendment didn't help all women, as Dulce Sloan explains. This month is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote and the ability to pose on the gram with I voted stickers. They're like thirst traps for democracy. But while the 19th Amendment was a major victory for white women, the story is not so simple for black women. The road to the 19th Amendment started in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Convention, the first women's rights meetup in American history. Before that, the only time women could legally gather was to catch a bouquet. I don't need you to use flowers, Beverly. Assuming you didn't sleep through 10th grade history, you probably know some of the people who were at Seneca Falls. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and even our homeboy Frederick Douglass got his hair pressed specially for the occasion. But you know who wasn't allowed to come? Black women. The whole roster was just a bunch of white people and one black guy. It looked like the cast of a Mission Impossible movie. Even though they weren't invited to the party, black female activists were also fighting for suffrage throughout the 19th century. Everyone's always talking about Susan B. Anthony. Well, today, Susan should be stepping aside to let some black ladies shine for once. For example, let's talk about Mary Church Terrell. She was incredibly influential in advancing the cause for women's suffrage. And in 1898, she delivered a speech to white activists that was one of the first expressions of what we now call intersectional feminism. Seeking no favors because of our color, we knock at the bar of justice, asking for an equal chance. 
She's a better woman than me. I would've taken a bar of justice and knocked somebody upside the head. And Terrell isn't alone. Activists like Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and Ida B. Wells all pushed for the vote. Alongside forgotten activists like Marianne Shad Carey and Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. They were fighting sexism and racism at the same time. You know how hard that is? You can't take your eye off either one for a second. If you're face to face with sexism, racism will sneak up on you like one of those raptors in Jurassic Park. Clever racists. Anyway, by 1918, thanks to all the tireless activism from black and white suffragists alike, President Woodrow Wilson endorsed the call for a constitutional amendment to legalize women's voting. Both houses of Congress passed the Susan B. Anthony Amendment in the summer of 1919, and on August 18, 1920, Tennessee became the 36th and final state to ratify the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. Which means, hooray! All women can now legally vote in federal elections, and we all live happily ever after. Nah! What do you think, this is a children's movie? Do I look like the Pixar lamp to you? Buckle up, Cinderella, because we ain't done yet. While white women got to stroll into the polls without a problem, Black women, like black men, still faced major obstacles throughout the 20th century, especially in the South. We're talking poll taxes, literacy tests, and even violence. If America put as much brain power into science as it did in denying black people the vote, we'd be living in moon mansions getting served by robot butlers. Why yes, robot chiefs, I will have another drink. Finally, in 1965, President LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act, which outlawed racial discriminations in elections. On paper, but even today, Republicans continue inventing ways to make it harder for people of color to vote, like shutting down polling locations in black neighborhoods and making voter ID laws when they know black people are less likely to have ID. So even though 100 years of the 19th Amendment is worth celebrating, America still has work to do when it comes to ensuring truly equal access to elections. So this August, y'all can celebrate Susan B. Anthony, but then y'all better be supporting candidates who will finally finish the job for everyone. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm about to seduce the postman to make sure he delivers my mail-in ballot on time. And because he's fine. I see you in those shorts, Gerald. Mmm, mmm. You can get it. Same day. Overnight. Thank you for that, Dulce. When we come back, I'll be speaking with the one and only Common. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with the award-winning rapper, actor, and activist, Common. We spoke about this new health and wellness series on YouTube that he's creating and his appearance this week at the DNC. Common, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Peace, brother. How you feeling, Trevor? Hey, man, I'm doing good. Taking every day as I can, you know? Um, it's good to have you here because every time I speak to you, I feel like you're starting a new career. Some people know Common as the rapper. Some people know Common as the action star who's fighting against John Wick. Some people know Common as the poet. Some people know Common as, as the businessman. Some people know Common as the activist who fights, you know, for people to have to be treated more fairly in the prison population. And now we're gonna be talking to Common as the man who's starting like a, like a fitness brand, a fitness and wellness brand. T tell me about that. Yeah, so Trevor, it's, it's, a, it's a health and wellness series called Common Well. And really everything you named for me is aligned with purpose. Like if your overall purpose, my overall purpose is to inspire people, is to spread God's love, is to enlighten um, and bring joy. And this, this series is really about health and wellness. It's been a, it's been a journey for me to understand myself more um, in, in a good way, like working out, eating better, 
meditation and you know like therapy um even i even got introduced to gardening by this this dude this the, the ghetto gardener named ron finley on the series <laughs> <laughs> so like to me trevor health and wellness for me has been like a way to combat when all the the, the hectic the chaos the the fight that we got going against the you know the, the leadership I'm like, man, I got to build myself up. I got to feel great about myself and show myself yeah, absolutely. love absolutely. so I can go out there and do the good fight, you know? What, what, yeah. do, you do, what do you do, Trevor? Do you do anything for, to stay like in that health and wellness thing? You can't, you can't interview me when I'm interviewing you. That's not how this works. I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to trick me into giving away my, like the fact that I don't work out. That's what you're trying. You're trying to make me feel bad because now I'm going to say, oh, I eat ice cream once a day uh, and then sometimes I do a few push-ups. I see what you're doing, Common. You're just trying to make me look bad. That's what you're trying to do. No, um, man, you look, you look good, <laughs> man. You look good. You, you, got the, you got the right sweatshirts. You got the right look. So, hey, we're just going to add a couple things to that, like a couple of push-ups, uh, what I love about what you've been talking about and what you're starting to do is you're trying to encourage people to look inwards. You're trying to encourage people to go like, hey man, I get that you're protesting. I get that you're involved in politics. I get that you're working. I get that you're trying to survive during this time, but none of that works if you yourself are not working on the inside. And I think we, we do take that for granted as people, you know, just meditating, just taking a moment to breathe, getting the body moving. It seems, it seems like a frivolous thing, but it's really important. I feel like you've always been like that as a human. So when you say you're doing more of that, like what, what changed in your world? Cause I've only known Common to be a guy who's like healthy and conscious about who he is. You know, I didn't start off. I started off on the South side of Chicago, eating barbecue, pork, you know, not working out, you know, <laughs> drinking beer, just do, doing anything. And I don't say, you know, I'm not knocking any of those things, but eventually at a certain point, I just felt like I wanted to be better in my craft and better right. as a person. And I started like taking steps. It was like just adding different things to my diet, paying more attention to myself. And I started to be clearer. I started to have, I felt more empowered, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I felt like I was more of myself. Um, how that is enhanced during this period, to be honest, Trevor, has been what you said. I've been able to spend more time doing it. Like sometimes, you know, because our days are busy, you know, before the pandemic, I would get up and do my meditation and just be quick, quick with the prayer. You know, and now I get a little I get time to spend with it. I get to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And something you said, Trevor, is super important. I always say it. It's like it's no activism without self-activism, really. Like meaning I want to go help the world. I want to help people's lives and change the world. I want to be a part of political change. But man, if I'm not good, I can't give my full self right. to, to that work. One thing we can't deny is America especially is really good at convincing people that being healthy is expensive. And it's really good at making unhealthy choices, the cheaper ones. You know, if you come from a poorer community, if you come from, from a poorer household, it's a lot easier to reach for a bag of chips. It's a lot easier to only eat fast food. There's nothing wrong with having it once in a while, but some people are trapped in this cycle. And I wondered if like, you, you, you know, if, if you've been tackling this or you're looking to tackle this in the series and saying like, how do we exist in a world where maybe, you know, like ghetto gardens you were talking about, for instance, like how do we exist in a world where we get people to the place where it's like, yo, you may not have money to do the fancy things that, that a lot of people used to stay healthy, but there are simple, cheaper things that can help maintain your health as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this show is geared, geared towards that, but I, I, we really break it down to like a raw level where you don't have to have a 
you'll have to go work out at some some gym or have all the like super equipment to work out. Um, it's also like just as far as foods go, it's just adding certain vegetables to your to your diet and adding certain greens and just and also with the gardening, you can grow your own food wherever you are in the hood, no matter what that takes. Um, right. And I think you know even and from and from meditation, it's just like finding your own space. Like I, I want this commonwealth for the people in the hood, brother. Like I want, and you know, and abroad, but it's really targeted towards making sure that, that no matter how poor you are or, or how, what um, economic structure you in, you can, you can do this, man. And, and we deserve that. And I feel like that is one of the things that helps elevate us and helps us feel better about ourselves. I feel like you've always been about elevation. You know, I, I wonder what you hope to achieve by performing uh, at the Democratic National Convention. I know you're gonna be one of the people who's performing. You take your performances really seriously. You try and pick the song that has a message and you're trying to get something across. What do you think people need to hear the most right now that you're trying to give them? Well, you know, at the Democratic National Convention, we performed the song, Glory, John Legend and I. Like that song is about saying, hey, we, we in the in the ways and in the in the steps of Dr. King and the women and men of the civil rights movement, we of today want to bring people together by extracting all the, the negative energy and not even like putting our minds towards that, but really focusing on how we can come together and how mm-hmm. we can uplift each other, how like we can spread love to each other. And that fight, man, I'm a fighter, man. I I know, you know, I talk about love, but I fight with love too, meaning I'm not like like Part of my combating the leadership that we have in there now is going out and doing for for our people, doing for right. our people, and bringing and like also make bringing awareness about voting and, and voting for the right people. Like Trevor, I'm out here like I'm I'm educating myself right now on like a lot of candidates that's running down the ticket, so I can yeah. go to states, yeah. so I can go to the states and, and educate people who are from these communities, saying, "Hey, man, there's some good people running in your state." We have an organization, myself and Alicia Keys and a few other artists called Urgency 2020. And, and man, I'm really enthused about that because we're going to take, you know, of course, the Biden um, Kamala ticket is beautiful. But we also want to make sure that people down down the ticket are, are made aware of and, and we go out and get these votes. So that's part of what, you know, for me, glory is is all for that. It's that fight. Mm-hmm. It's fighting with love. I love that, man. You, you, are, you are combative in your love. That sounds like what my mom used to say when she would whip my ass. I'm combative <laughs> in my love. Carmen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I appreciate you. Uh, I can't wait to see you again in person. Look after yourself, sir. All right. Peace, good brother. Love, Trevor. Thank you so much, Carmen. When we come back, Veronica Chambers is going to be talking to us about her brand new book that shows you the suffrage movement in a way you've never seen. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with New York Times editor Veronica Chambers. We talked about the 100th anniversary of American women getting the vote and about her new book on the suffrage movement. Veronica Chambers, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you. It's nice to be socially distancing from you. I uh, really appreciate, uh, appreciate having you on the show because you've done something that I honestly think is one of the most crucial things ever, and that is writing a book that teaches people about history. And although you've written it 
predominantly for middle schoolers, I feel like everyone should read this book because it's about the suffrages, you know, the suffrage movement in America. It's about women fighting for the right to vote. But what I find interesting is that it tells a part of history that is oftentimes overlooked. Why did you think this book was so crucial? Well, about a year and a half ago, maybe a little more, we were thinking we knew the anniversary of the 19th Amendment was coming up, and we kind of gathered in a room at the New York Times, and we said, what do we know? And it turned out not a lot. And so the idea of writing the middle grade, the middle grade book was really from that thing that journalists do, which is like, explain it to me like I was a 10-year-old. And if you can explain it to someone like you're a 10 year old, you really actually have to learn a lot to distill it. And that's what we did. And it, it, it kind of shaped everything, including all the coverage we're doing now. I won't lie. One thing that I really found interesting in the way you wrote about their stories is they seem pretty badass. You know, like normally when you read about the suffrage movement, it gets, it sometimes can be portrayed as like, and they asked for the right to vote and they asked again and they asked again, but you portray them as really tactical geniuses in politics. One of the first things we did is we had a round table of historians and one of them, Kate LeMay from the Smithsonian, she was like, suffrage needs a rewrite. This is not a boring history. These are badass political strategists who worked for 90 years to get the job done. And that stuck in my head. So I really tried to let that infuse the writing and it. I, I really fell in love with these women. I have to tell you, they just became like my heroes and I couldn't believe that I didn't grow up knowing about them. This book is about the women who fought for their right to vote. It's also the story, which is really difficult, of how women fought for the right to vote, but not all of those women were treated equally when the vote was, was, uh, was given to women. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, you know, the suffrage movement really has its history in abolition, the movement to end slavery, and then the Civil War comes and the 15th Amendment is up. And they decide to push for Black men to get the vote before white women. And quite frankly, you know, we have a sort of cultural moment of Karens. The Karens of the 19th century were not having it. <laughs> they were just basically like, how dare these men who are just off plantations get the right to vote before us? And it really sets up a pecking order that we see today, which is, you know, white men, white women, black men, black women, and there's this clash and it really breaks apart the movement and it's, it's difficult and it sets the tone for a lot. But I will say that I think that what Kimberly Crenshaw said about black women showing up and showing out, you see it so much in the history. As early as the 1810s, 1820s, years before Seneca Falls, black women are giving speeches about women's rights and the motto lifting as we climb is really about opening the door as wide as you can get it for as many people as you can get it. You know, Susan B. Anthony is somebody that so many people look up to and they go like, man, if it weren't for her, women wouldn't have the right to vote. And this was wonderful. But she does have a complicated history as, as a journalist and as a writer. How did you try and navigate that story of somebody who has done something amazing, but also has extremely problematic views and tried to hold other people back? Well, that was definitely, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of one of the challenges. But one of the things that I fought really strongly for, I remember sitting in a meeting and someone said, we should do a chapter called Susan B. Anthony is canceled. And I was like, we are not canceling people from history. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, we're just not. Like, it's so flip and so whatever. I mean, the fact is, is that she dedicated her whole life to it. You know, the movement took so long. Only one woman who signed at Seneca Falls, lived to vote in 1920. Wow. That's how long this movement took. So I think that, you know, we just have to say some people had problems and I think we can 
hold a more complicated view now, appreciate them for what they did and know that they had problems and hopefully teach our kids to learn from that, you know? I really think this will be great for kids to see themselves because yes, you have white women who are fighting for the right to vote, but they're joined by black women who are also fighting for the right to vote, who, as you said, inspired much of the movement. You also have Asian women who are fighting for the right to vote. You have Latinx women who are fighting for the right to vote. And it really does paint a more, um, not just diverse, but but really like superhero picture of this, this band of people who fought in different ways for this right. Do you think it's important for us to, to reframe the story and tell it with all of the color, excuse the pun, that it, that it truly deserves? You know, we think about diversity as ticking boxes, but really when you get into the story of these women of color and suffrage, they are really futurists. They are thinking about not just themselves, but other generations. 16-year-old Mabel Pingwa Lee led one of the largest suffrage parades in history, knowing that the Chinese Exclusion Act meant that she herself would not be able to vote in 1920. These suffragists who were futurists were thinking not just about themselves, not just about the gram, and that's what I try to teach my daughter and her friends, is you know, you don't have to have like likes to be a badass. You just have to do the right thing, be focused, and like listen to your heart and try to help people, you know? When kids are reading your book, what would you like them to take and apply to today? What would you hope that they try and inspire themselves to think about for tomorrow? Because many of them will go like, well, everyone can vote, so I guess the job is done. What would you hope that they garner from this that they may not necessarily immediately, um, you know, jump to? Well, I think it's funny because you saying that, I remember being in school and thinking, oh, the civil rights movement is done. I'm never going to have to fight that battle again. Um, I think the one thing I would love um, for kids to know is that there's never just one thing going on at one time. And that's why it's actually hard to make a movement because white suffragists were like, we have to focus on women. And Ida B. Wells Barnett comes in and says, we have to talk about lynching. And then, you know, Rose Snyderman and Margaret Hinchy come in and they say, we have to talk about child labor laws and safe factory conditions for poor women. And The fact is that's the complicated thing about making a difference is knowing that nothing is happening in isolation. And really the trick of working through coalition and building a movement is being able to hear the voices at around you and gathering together to do the work of many issues. That is the challenge of leadership. And I hope the book gives a little bit of a glimpse of how these amazing women did that. I hope someone gets books like these to the White House because I think they're not just fantastic for kids, but they're fantastic for adults who may read at a child's level. So uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show and uh, congratulations on creating a wonderful, wonderful book that everybody should uh, know about. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you again, Veronica. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, I wanted to remind you that there are a lot of groups out there right now who are working to protect and advance voting rights in the elections coming up in November. Now, one of them is the Alliance for Youth Organizing, which is a national network of local youth-led organizations mobilizing people to vote. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and if you see John Kasich on the side of the road, please throw him a sandwich. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 